0: How are you doing? All right, so we're going to make this really cosy and intimate because I thought that would be the nicest way to do this. I don't know how many opportunities you're going to get in your life to be this close to me, to to our guest, who's a billionaire, as you know, and um, an amazing chap who I was very fortunate to meet when we did the first podcast. And we wanted to make it really about you and so we're just going to do the whole thing as a Q&A. Now, I know once we get a couple of questions in, we'll get in really good flow. Uh, we'll probably go on lots of tangents, etc. But all the content is going to be driven by you. <coughs> I've got a question. David's not in the room, so I've been thinking about this, though, for a long time. I'm going to say it to you, and I might ask it to him, but I always think it's all right for a billionaire to say that money isn't really that much of a thing and doesn't matter. I've always thought that. And he's, oh, I've had boats and planes. Well, let us have a boat and a plane, and then we'll judge if we're not interested in money or not. But I often wonder if people say money isn't a driver when they've made so much that it's not important anymore. But if we haven't made it, this is why I made the point about 10 million, because at least get to the point where you don't have to worry about it anymore, because when you haven't got enough, you do have to worry about it, because it is a thing. Are you having a good time, by the way? Yes. Great. Rock, 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 rock.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> How are you doing, David? Okay. Sorry. That's all right. I can hear you in the men's room saying, uh. <laughs> saying. you don't have to worry about making money when you already have it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I said I was going to ask you myself. So. <laughs> I have the biggest mouth ever. It always, always gets me in trouble. Right. So over to you. We're, yes. Um, what's your name, sir? Nadim. Hi, Nadim.
2: Hi, David. How are you, sir? So the question is, people say if successful people lose everything, including their shirt, their contacts, they will always come back with, because they've got it inbuilt in their head, to come back fighting, be successful again. Can you give us a few ideas in a year, how could you go from zero to some the same sort of level?
1: Well, people... People say that if you, if you lose everything, you can make it back, but you can lose your money. But you're not going to lose, hopefully, your confidence. You're not going to lose other capital that you have, your connections or your knowledge of an industry or a business. So those, that soft capital that you have will allow you to be able to, to make it again believe me i've i 've i've made a lot of money i've lost a lot of money i've given away a lot of money i've made a lot of money again so that soft capital that you have doesn't go away so um, you're starting after you lose all your money you're starting at sort of ninety percent of the way there anyway because you have you, you know people and you know what makes people tick at least in your own your own industry so i I think it's it's um, it's unfair for people to think that it's just their talent that allowed them to make, make it again. It's easier to make it once, once you've made it because you understand the roadmap as well. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, sir. What's your name? Steve. Hi, Steve. The microphone coming to you, Steve, and a book.
2: Great. Thank you for the book, by the way. It's a nice touch. Thanks. Hi, You're David. Welcome. How are you? Um, good, thanks. So I, I guess my question is similar to the last one, but it is a little bit different. And it's, if you had to start out over again, knowing what you know today, but with starting with no assets and limited cash, what advice could you give us or what would you do to, to build your wealth right back up there? What, what, what sort of action would you actually take?
1: So what I would have to first ask you, what do you want to, when you have whatever you determine as a lot of wealth, what is it that you want to do with that? What are you going to do with it when you have it? So I'm asking you that first so I can answer your question. What are sure. you going to do? With I think
2: it's kind of connected to what Rob was saying earlier about the, the 10 million pound mark. You know, not, not to have the other, all, all these worries in life about having to make more money, but to get to that comfortable position.
1: So your objective is to have the security of not having to worry about money. Correct. So I'm, I'm not sure that if that's the, it's interesting, Rob, if that's the objective I'm not sure an entrepreneurial path is the safest path uh, to get there.
0: I was just thinking, by the way, if in case that gets linked to my comment, that is not my
1: objective for safety. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, I understand. Yeah. I, I understand, but I'm just saying. I, I, I think that if your if your objective is is security and, <laughs> and, and safety, I'm not sure that entrepreneurial path it, that's a high risk path you're taking to to security. So. I think of myself as starting over again every day. First of all, so to me, I—that's the mindset I try to bring to the game every morning—is that I'm starting all over again. But for me, I think you—you you want to—you um, want to pursue a business that you love, so that if you fail doing it you fail doing something you love. So your downside is spending your life doing something you love. And if you look at it that way, every day, no matter how hard it is, it's, it's, not really, it's not really very hard at all because you're doing something you love. If you're doing something you don't like with the pursuit of having enough wealth so that you can then do what you like... It's a a dangerous game because you're going to spend the majority of your life doing something you don't like so you can have the freedom to do what you like. Um, So you spend the big amount of time doing something you don't like for the small amount of time so you can have the time when you're more likely to have health issues, when you're more likely to have all sorts of other stuff that happens in life, get involved. So if you can do what you love... And you, make, you probably will make money, so it's probably going to be great because you love it, you'll work hard at it. But if you don't love it, you're, doing, you're spending your whole life doing what you love. So that, that's, that's how I'd approach it. And I think it's a much more rewarding way. It's, it's, decide, it's making a decision today whether you want to live an, live an ordinary life or an extraordinary life. If you want to live an ordinary life, try to make a bunch of money so that you don't have to worry about that money. So spend your formative years worrying so you don't have to worry later on. When, as you get older, you realize you don't worry anyway because you don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you really don't. A, f- a friend of mine is a famous musician, so let's keep his name out of it. But one time he said to me... Tell us. I, I, I was at his birthday party, and, and, and he was turning... I can't remember. I think he was turning fifty at the time, and and he said, "Know what the greatest part about today is? Because I actually don't give a shit what anybody else thinks anymore, and I can just spend the rest of my life observing them. And I don't really, I don't really care what the, you know how they're observing me. And that's what happens as you as you get older. So you should decide, like today, now, do you want to live an ordinary life or an extraordinary life? If you want to live an extraordinary life? Just do what makes you happy." And you'll, if you make money at it, great. If you don't, you're still doing what makes happy. Long, I mean, as long as you can put food on the table. I mean, I'm not talking about people who, who, you know, they have three kids at home with special needs and, you know, and a sick mother that they're caring for, and they have all sorts of other <clears throat> complexities that get involved in, in all of our lives. That's how I'd approach it. So Thanks. a couple of things I'd
0: like to add and maybe just challenge your thinking a bit. Um, the first one, I think... I was trying to think how could I give a really quick, simple answer to essentially the two questions of of what would you do if you started all over again? Um, I would say serve, solve, scale. So if I was starting again, obviously no one can take my knowledge, no one can take my, I love the term soft capital. I was quite gobsmacked how few of you wrote that down because to me that was quite a profound statement, soft capital, i.e. it has hard value, capital, But it's soft skills like contacts, relationships, your followers on social media, all this stuff that you've got that isn't capital. And that has a capital value. It's just not financial capital. So just that was soft capital, soft capital. And that's what you can't take. You can take the money. Can't take the soft capital. So that's what I
1: think people mean. He's, ta- he's taken that as his own now. You notice that. Right? <laughs> no, no, no. He's taken that. You're live streaming. Yeah. That's all uh, right, uh, uh, He's taken time that. He's... Soft capital, Rob Moore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's taken that as his own. I watched him over 10 seconds take that. See, that was a very profound thing for, for me to say, he actually said. And then he just took it. He just took it. I saw that. That's apparently another way to make money. <laughs> Don't forget you are my guest.
0: (laughs) Um, Right. Who can I serve, what can I solve, and how can I scale? I think if I was starting again, I'd look for that. Because I think people forget what fair exchange is. People don't know what fair exchange is. Fair exchange is equal value given and value received. And usually, as an entrepreneur, we're measuring value received monetarily. So if I can create value, who can I serve? Then I can put a fee structure around it and get my value. Um, Fair exchange is a sweet spot between the two. Maximum profit, maximum value um, in equal balance. What problems can I solve? I mean, that's what entrepreneurship is. It's solving problems. And I'm gobsmacked at how many people don't want problems. But did you remember I interviewed, if you listen to the podcast, the CEO of Netflix? And he says, I just imagine myself putting these tinted glasses on. I go seeking out the world's problems. I have like a sceptical view and just try and look for problems in everything. And then when I find all these problems, like, I don't know if you could hear earlier, there were people in there and it was a noise. That's a problem. Um, Blah, 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 blah. And you're looking for problems. and And then you go into solution mode. To me, that's entrepreneurship. And a commonality I've heard in all the very hyper successful people I've ever met is they always talk about solving problems and they seem to enjoy it. Whereas lower level, less successful people is they don't like problems, they want them reared and, the, you know, they the take them away as opposed to let me deal with them. So serve, solve and then scale. And I think you're back in the game and you might be back in the game quick. I, this is not a popular thing to say, but I'm going to say it because I think it's important because, yes, we all want freedom, choice and money and, you know, we want to be comfortable and secure. I just think you're, you're possibly looking in the wrong place because I, I, I made enough money to be secure and comfortable and I realised it wasn't what I wanted. Now, I, I do want more money and more things, but I don't want comfort and security. I want to do something that matters. And like I would sell all of my watch collection, you know I love watches, if it meant I could take my company from national to global or if it meant I could really make a difference across the planet, I know i would do that immediately. It's not gonna stop me buying them, but I would do that. And so that tells me I've got a mission. So finding, some, I think happiness, yes, but I also think what you feel is meaningful. And then when you're doing something that's meaningful, you're not really looking for comfort and security because you'll, you'll, you will surprise yourself at how you'll take some risks because you're looking for something that's meaningful. And for me, helping as many people across the planet get a better financial education, start and scale their business, that's meaningful. And I, I'm not bothered about security and comfort. I'm really not. In fact, that's boring. Yeah, I guess in my twenties or thirties, when I was looking for money, I, I was I was looking for that. So I just think some people maybe they're looking in the wrong place or, or they're looking at the wrong thing, because probably what is more secure and comfortable than ten million? I gave you a figure is the ability to go and create value and build a company and make it successful in three years or five years. Because money is easy come, easy go. So I feel like my ability to create something is the comfort and the security, not how much money I've got sat in the bank. Because a recession, you can lose half your wealth on paper, of course. So just something to challenge your thinking. Not, not to disagree, because I get that... But David's point is good. If you really are looking for comfort and security starting a load of businesses, it's probably the riskiest way to do that. All right, what's your name in the middle? Yes? Jeannie. Jeannie, okay, so microphone to Jeannie. I always credit people, by the way. I don't (laughs) nick their stuff. I was
1: just just getting you back for that men's room (laughs) comment.
3: Hello. um, On the theme of disruption and rethinking and therefore making money through that way, um, in your, both of you, in your uh, meetings with um, problem solvers, effectively, who've become successful, are there any themes going around at the moment that you feel keep recurring and you think, ah, maybe we're getting some momentum behind that particular thing?
1: The- themes, <clears throat> give me the beginning of it again, themes that are going around.
3: That To do with rethink and disruption, themes in your discussions with successful people and problem solvers, are there any recurring themes that you're all talking about and you think, ah, oh, maybe something is gonna come up that will yeah. you know, change things significantly?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, and I look at it as, not as themes, I look at it as there are, there are trends and there are fads and if you follow trends, you'll become very successful, and if you follow fads, you may or may not, it may or may not work out for you. More likely, it won't work out for you, unless you're sort of the lucky one, but if you follow trends, and the good part about following trends is that when you fail, you've now limited your risk when you pick yourself up, because you, the trend is still there, and you know one way not to solve the problem, and if you fail a second time, You've cut your chance of, of, of failure a lot for the next time. Or you've increased your chance of success, maybe is a better way to say it, if you keep on following a trend. So that's why I always like to follow trends. So The, the trends that I see right now and probably the, the, the biggest global trend you see right now is the empowerment of young people who, you know, we had a little of that during the the 60s, you know, globally, around the Vietnam War and around a few other issues. And then it sort of died off as people that the next generation found themselves more wealthy than their parents, and they sort of liked it, and, and they liked, you know, we went from a one-car family to everybody having a car, and, you know, went, went from people going out to dinner, you know, on special occasions, to going out all the time. and. People started spending money, and, and then we got ourselves in the situation we're in now. So I see the, the one trend I see is the empowerment of, of, of young people. Another thing, a um, huge trend that's coming is Internet 3.0. So Internet 1.0 was simply about moving bits more efficiently from point A to point B. That's all it was. It was invented by a guy named Robert Kahn and another guy named Vin Cerf that worked for the Department of Defense in this 1970s. Um, and Internet 2.0 was about people interacting with a machine. So that gave you Google and Instagram and Facebook and anything else that you do with your phone or your, your computer. Internet 3.0 was machine communicating with machines at scale, with trillions of machines being able to talk to themselves at the same time. That's going to make what we've seen seem like child's play. That's going to totally change everything we know about education, healthcare and work and how you work and how things get done in intellectual capital and where, things get, where knowledge gets transferred uh, and how knowledge gets manipulated and, and, and data gets manipulated. So that trend of internet 3.0 is gonna change everything. And if you have a business plan that's somehow wrapped around Internet 3.0. It's either around machine learning or artificial intelligence, uh, machines talking to machines, or around connectivity, or around empowering people, or around bringing bringing the revolution up from the bottom instead of the old uh, uh, power from the top. Because another trend is that power shift from the top to the bottom. So if you're around Internet 3.0, connectivity, or the power shift from the top to the bottom, if your business plan is around any of those three, Uh, or around cutting out the middleman. If your business is about cutting, because one of the byproducts of this power shift is that people have realized that there's a whole bunch of industry in the middle between the product and the consumer, that it's gonna go away. And we've seen it go away in, in some obvious industries like, you remember only a decade ago there was travel agents on every corner, and we saw that go away. And and we saw, you know, the phone book go away. And we we saw some obvious middlemen go away. But you're going to see everyone that's between the consumer and the customer go away. So if your business is about connecting the consumer and the customer, Internet 3.0, connectivity, or empowering young people, then it doesn't matter how many times you fail, you'll eventually get it right. And you'll eventually be successful. But now in between, there's going to be a 1,000 and one trend, you know, trends, where people try to do the next greatest, you know, there'll be, there'll be 100 <coughs> Facebook 2.0s that will fail between, between now and when the next one takes off, which will eventually take off. And the next one, by the way, which will differentiate it, the, the, the new social media platforms that are successful are gonna be those where the consumer owns their own data. That will be a trend that for sure is going to happen. People people haven't really realized how much they've been ripped off as a community yet. But when they do realize that, there'll be something called um, data portability, which is something that... Politicians haven't been able to get their head around because it's too complicated for them. But um, you know, it's complicated stuff, and they're short-term thinkers. They're thinking about the next election cycle. That's their whole life. Their whole life is the next election cycle. They're like a charity who's in business to keep themselves in business. You know, they don't make any money to give away. They just make money to keep themselves in business, which lots of them are in that business, right? So these politicians are in the business of getting reelected, not solving long-term problems. But if you remember, when I started out in the telecom business, the phone company owned your phone number. So when I started the first competitive phone company in America, it, you know, I'd go and I'd knock on your door and I'd say, this, i got a great product, it's 30% cheaper, it's faster, it's better, it's it's the coolest thing ever. And you'd be like, I'd love to buy that, and I'd say, but you have to change your phone number. And they'd be like, no interest. So I had to testify before Congress, me and lots of other men and women, to get Number portability, where we owned our own phone numbers, so that was something that took us twenty years to get, and that now has created the the competition in, in the uh, in the phone industry. Now, to give you an idea, when Robert Kahn and Vint Cerf invented the internet, what cost a, a dollar today to buy, in <coughs> any way you want to measure it, bandwidth. Capacity, storage, speed, flexibility, measure it any way you want. What cost a dollar to buy today in telecom, storage on the cloud, speed, phone call, data service, measure it any way you want. In 19 mid 1970s, that was a million dollars. So it's got a million times cheaper, right? An Internet 3.0 could be a million times more transformative than the original internet. So you have to multiply a million by a million. And what you get is a ginormous number. (laughs) And That's that's how transformative it's it's going to be. And that's how disruptive it's going to be. And what we have to make sure is that in all that disruption, at the same time, we bring the bottom up, because we have a chance to. We can rethink education, because the first man or woman that gets hired by Goldman Sachs, that got their education 100% online, will change the educational industry overnight. That will happen. In Oxford and Cambridge and Georgetown and Princeton and Yale and Stanford, they'll be fine for another 100 years, because that's a, they're the top of the food chain. But everybody else is screwed. Everybody else is screwed. Because if you're a teacher and you're married to a cop, in the two of you are saving all your money so you can put your kids through to college in America where it costs you fifty thousand dollars a year. Wow. Right? You're gonna say, look, it doesn't make any sense. And then Goldman Sachs will hire someone, then Citibank will hire someone, and then Procter Gamble will hire someone, then GE will hire someone, and that'll transform that. Then we have to do this then we have to figure out how to do the same thing around healthcare. we have to do the same thing around housing. Now luckily for us, the way to one of the solutions to housing is to allow people to live in rural environments so where housing is is cheaper. Well, they can't live there unless unless the job structure changes and the job structure can't change unless we get connectivity there. So so you can see how the pieces all fit together. So any business plan you have around that follows that trend, you'll be fine.
3: Thank you very much.
1: Always a pleasure. So we'll come to the front. We'll go Camilla first.
3: Hi. Hey. Um, So the question from me is, if you had to choose, what would you say was the one thing in particular that accelerated your business the most and why? Luck. What would you call luck?
1: Most successful people want to tell you, you know, how how smart they are and and, uh, how hard they work. Now, I work very hard. I I work... Other people work as hard, but you can't work harder than me because I work you know, until I drop. So I work I work very, very hard. And um, as I said earlier, I'm optimistic and I'm curious. But, you know, a lot of, I would say that in addition to luck, the second thing would be that I'm very observant of the trend. I'm very observant of what is trending, like we spoke about with this lady a second ago, is... The trend is that the middleman is going to be cut out. That's as clear as day to me. That you've got the product, the consumer, anything in between is just noise and a waste of money. That I'm sure of. I am sure that um, Big Pharma in the United States is going to come under huge attack because it's wrong to pay $450 for insulin in America and $45 all over. And I could have a thousand other examples against Big Pharma. It's wrong that my industry the the, the um, 50 billion dollars were made in in american pharma last year um, 9 of the 10 t- companies were you know made pills that have been around for for a long time so the cost should have been coming down they average between 20 and 30% profit when the S&P which is three times higher than the S&P so that for sure is going to come under attack i am sure that internet 3.0 when machines are talking to machines at scale, that it's everything around education has to be changed. So there's certain trends that I am as sure as I'm um, slouching here that are going to uh, happen, and if you follow those trends and you have patience to stay on them and patience to pick yourself up when you fail, and I say this in my book, your plan B will be better than your plan A. It always is. Plan B is always better than plan A because plan A was the best plan you had at that moment. Plan B is the best plan you have knowing everything you learned when plan A didn't work, which is a lot. So it's, by definition, of course, it's going to be better than your plan A. And some people, you work so hard on their plan A before they just let, let the universe move you on to plan B because plan A uh, is not your best plan most of the time if you stay on trend. And there are certain things that are trends, and you, can, and you can see them as clear as you can see the hand in front of your face, that what those trends are gonna be around um, Internet 3.0, and you don't have to be an engineer to know how complicated, Internet 3, 3.0 includes data portability, and, and, and includes a protocol around how do all these Internet of things talk to each other? Like people talk about internet of things, but there's gonna be a trillion different things, but they have, there's no protocol for when they talk to each other. So that has to be solved. But I can guarantee you that will get solved. 100% certainty that will get solved. Data portability has to be solved. 100% certainty that will get solved. There's a spectrum issue that has to get solved. 100% certainty that will get solved. So, it, and if you just stay on the trend, luck will find you. If you stay on the trend, if you're patient. Now, some people aren't patient. Some people want everything now. Um, and that becomes a little, a, little bit, a little bit more difficult. And some people just want a lot of money so they can buy a lot of stuff. And that's very time-consuming. It's time you could be spent working on, working on other stuff. So if you stay on trend, luck will find you for sure.
3: And are there any particular examples you could think of of trends that have directly impacted your business, your line of business?
1: Yeah, like when I, as that woman was saying, when I was sitting in Boston as a 20-something-year-old kid and I I first, the first thing, I I saw these people digging these big holes in the street and, and, and grown men in there passing each other these big pipes and gluing them together and then putting manholes together and building these big trenches to put this little tiny cable through it. And I said, why don't, why don't we just make the cable inside a pipe? Why don't we just make the pipe continuous in a big reel? And we'll just cut a little little hole in a little slit in the street. And they said, well, you know, that's not the way pipe, pipes come. And I said, no, no, I know, but maybe they should come that way. So I invented a new way. I invented that method of building the conduit on the outside of the cable already, which dropped the cost of construction by about 80%. So then after that, um, when I was talking to my friend from the Bank of Boston, and I was saying, "If, if if all these computers are talking to all these computers, why are we using the phone network? Well, the reason is because the phone company had thousands of engineers that were trying to shove data through a copper wire that was designed to move voice. And I said, they're never gonna rethink the model because they've been doing it that way for a hundred years, and they just keep on coming up with ways to shove. And that was called dial-up internet access. If you, if anybody in this room remembers that product, no, she's right. too young. But yeah. Some okay. people, do. yeah. Well, yeah. The last time someone tried to send an email dial-up. On, on dial-up internet access, dial-up. it would, took hours yeah. for anything Ugh, to happen. My but that, that product was Shit. the phone company. That was the phone company engineers figuring out how to put data through a voice network. So that's what that product was. So while they were doing that, I was saying, I got an idea. Let's build a data network, and we'll put data through a data network. So we built a data network, and then luckily for me, I dropped voice on top of it. So when I started in the phone business, the average cost of a phone call in America was 30 cents. Today, voice is virtually free. And that's because you can ride it free on a data network, right? And now data is just about free, and video, I mean, it's all data, but video is where everybody makes all the money. So if you stay on trend, luck will come. But people... You have to have the staying power to stay on, tr- stay on trend. There's big, big trends out there that you can see as clear as your hand in front of your face, and you just have to be willing to stay on them and know and, and not get distracted. Just stay on trend, and luck will come for sure. And look, if not, you'll live an extraordinary life having fun anyway.
3: <laughs>
1: so that's the downside.
3: Thank you.
0: I think for us, partnership and opportunity. It's great hearing David answer the questions first because I get to really think, and I might instantly come up with an idea and then it might change or it might stay. Like staff networks. Yeah. That was one of your brilliant ideas you came up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: This is live. Yeah, it is.
0: Um, So if I think to some of the things that grew us big when... Christopher Howard and Think Big um, promoted my first book, um, Property Investing Secrets. That was a massive jump. We punched well above our weight partnering with him. Um, Other partnerships and joint ventures we've done. We did a joint venture with Daniel Wagner when we launched the Amazon courses to the UK. So certainly if your question was around big, fast growth points which seemed quite exponential for you i would say partnerships and i reckon if you look at a lot of big companies and successful people i mean virgin all the companies are partnerships virtually all of them virgin brand and then it might be um, you know a data network or a gym or another company behind it a credit a bank but they're all partnerships so i'd say they're the things that you know you go slow you go slow you go slow you go slow you do a partnership you go big and then the second thing is opportunity. And I, you said to David, what, what does luck mean? And, you know, they say preparedness. Um, what is it, something like hard work versus preparedness? I would say um, luck is taking your chance when the time is right for you. And I believe that we all get our doses of luck and opportunity. Some of it comes too early, some of it comes too late, some of it we're not ready, and a lot of it we don't see because we're not, we're blinkered. But then when your partnership opportunity, your time comes to shine, you, you find a social media platform that you've figured out, whatever, you've got to be able to see it. And so I think opportunity is putting yourself out there to get opportunities, and then being able to see it when it's there ah, I get it. And you've got to, have it some, you've got to build some intuition on that because sometimes I've, I see too many, many opportunities, you know, a bit like, ah, all over the place. And other times I'm a bit sceptical and I don't see an opportunity. Other times I'm too early or too late. But every now and again you get it right.
1: And when you get it right, you've got, you've got to double down. Um, so Rob, right. you should, you, I think you blew by that partnership because it comes naturally to you, you might have blown by that too quick. Because you've had successful partnerships, that's a skill that you have that most people don't have. And and you shouldn't assume, because you're good at it, lots of people find partnerships very, very hard. And if you could teach your audience, you know, on another time you could bring a group in just to talk about partnerships that would be valuable because learning how to be a good partner pays dividends in all aspects of your life, 100%. in your relationships, in your friendships in your business relationships And it's, ve- it's a learned behavior no one's born knowing how to be a good partner mm. so the fact that you you've learned that and you've mastered that is something you should figure out how to share with your audience because mm. it's a very difficult thing and the smarter you are the more successful you are, the more difficult it is to be a good partner. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because... Mm-hmm.
0: New yeah. Five years. <laughs> what was that? New course. New course. New course. New course, yeah. New course. Love it. <laughs> <book>.
1: oh, <laughs> Rob, Rob, Rob Moore. Soft Networks and Partnerships. <laughs> It has, has a ring. It has a ring.
0: Because they all love you, I'm not going to say a word. Uh, five years ago, I was doing 250 speeches a year, and 90% of the revenue for my companies were coming from my speeches. Now we have 850 training days a year, and maybe 10% of our revenue comes from me or my speeches. So I guess what I've been able to figure out is how to have partners as speakers and it's nice of, for david to say i've clearly figured that out he said mastered it. i would definitely not say mastered i would say always learning because we've had some partners where it's not worked we've had some partners that maybe they would have a, an opinion on us and we've got an opinion on them um, if i could just give you a couple of little things before we move on to the next question about partnerships because i feel like david's saying oh we should talk about that but they're not addressing it I feel like it's a bit of a cliffhanger So I think my biggest revelation in partnerships, and this is my staff, etc., is instead of going, what do I want from this partnership? Going, what do you want from this partnership? And how can I serve you rather than you serving me? Um, I think that would be the single biggest thing that's helped us create partnerships because normally when you're doing partnerships is what do I want and I want this and I want that and I want you to do this and you're not doing this well enough and you're, you're not fulfilling your side of the bargain blah 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 and everyone's kind of used to that and that's not really like that's not teamwork is it That's just kind of like two people who are pretending to be a partner when in fact they just have their own needs but my MD taught me this vicariously because she didn't teach me it by saying it she taught me it by being it But normally when you hire staff in the early days of being an entrepreneur, your assumption is they work for you. Uh, If you flip that on its head and go, I work for them, like I work for my 85 staff instead of my 85 staff work for me, that's a completely different mindset. Uh, And I, I think you're a better boss, a better leader, and I think you can forge better partnerships if you have that mindset. Of course, you still have to see your own needs met and they've still got to do their job and be on time and... Speak well to our customers, etc. I think that's probably the one thing that's helped us the most with partnerships. Uh, we, we've got some um, speeches coming up uh, in seven or eight different countries next year, with and all of my trainers are going and travelling the world doing it. I'm not doing it; they're doing it. They get the glory, which I wasn't happy with at first. Five years. No, but I'm just being honest. You know, like letting go and letting them take all the glory. That was something that I found hard because you love the adulation as a speaker. But my adulation now is oh, I'm going to have speakers speaking in eight different countries next year. And we're going, we might generate an additional five million in revenue in countries we've never been to before. I'm going to get a 50 percent share of that. And, and they're going and, and doing it. So that would be where I now would get my own needs met. But yeah, it's fascinating. We should, should think about that. We should do a podcast on that. Or maybe I should get a guest who's been really great with partnerships.
4: Because
0: that for me is the, the quickest way we've grown. It's not my effort. It's leveraging partnerships. Yep. Cool, did you have a question? Yes. yes um.
3: Do you think there's a relationship between being rich, making good money, and also being spiritual and having this emotional intelligence? Oh, what an
1: interesting question. Is there a relationship between being spiritual and um, being monetarily rich? That's an interesting question.
0: I've got a load to say on this. Well, uh, um, (laughs) I am
3: itching.
1: (laughs) Are you a spiritual person? I I am. Everyone is. And I, 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 I I think that if you um, have a, you know, define spiritual in my own My own construct. My own construct that there's more to, um, you know, there's more to here than here, right? So there's a bigger purpose and people are connected in a way that's not fully understood and, and there's a way that the universe takes you through your little journey. If you believe that, I think it makes you see something in everyone that you might see past if you weren't spiritual. So it makes you see and listen and be more curious about people than you might otherwise be. And through that, you learn more. And through that, you get to connect those dots with a common red thread and figure out where, what the trends are. And through that, you get to make make a lot of money. So it, does that make sense? So it's being having a spiritual connection with people allows you to hear where they're coming from, which helps you figure out where the trends are globally.
3: It's more about, I guess, emotional intelligence, which are. Explain well, well,
1: yeah, it's, it might be about emotional intelligence, or it might, might just be sort of a, a caring about something other than than yourself that allows you to see. If you only care about yourself, it's really hard for you to see trends um, because your 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 context is pretty pretty small and pretty defined. If you care about other people, I think you you're more apt to see a a, a bigger construct, which will allow you then to follow, uh, put the connect the dots a little bit, a little bit uh, more easy. You know what I mean? Yes. And I think that that I think I'm right on that. If not, I'm gonna stick with my fairy dust and my belief that that's true, <laughs> because it's more interesting. But I think it's I think it's actually I think it's true, and I think it allows you to see. The opportunities much clear. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Okay, Rob has an opinion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I forget who the originator of this quote was, but I I was taught it by my mentor, one of my mentors, Dr. John DeMartini, and I think this explains the the relationship between wealth and. Sp- spirituality better than anything I've ever heard and that is spirit without matter is motionless and matter without spirit is expressionless so spirit without matter is motionless and matter without spirit is expressionless and what that means to me because we're all different is that they're not separable it's the human mind that tries to separate the spirit and the material. But that is our reality construct of it. Someone could say that a £50,000 Patek watch is a heinous waste. You're not writing that
1: quote and making that your own, iron. You?
3: <laughs>
1: Already done. <All> right. <laughs> Good artists
0: borrow, great artists steal. Who was that that said that? (laughs) It's a good one. (laughs)
4: Um,
0: There would, of course, be many people that say a £50,000 Patek Philippe watch is a grotesque waste of money when there are so many starving people on the planet. But they are unrelated. But a £50,000 Patek watch would have had an immense amount of human spirit to create something of such form and art and beauty. And a watchmaker who's lived his whole life, stayed in the same small town. Because I've been to all the best watchmakers in the world because I'm passionate about watches. You know, the founder of Lamborghini... Um, Essentially, if you believe the story, he started his company because he got goaded by the founder of Ferraris for making tractors. And I own a Lamborghini Aventador and that's not a tractor. That is is a thing of beauty. That really is. Um, So I think when people try and separate it, like owning a Lamborghini, the dealer's made a good bit of money out of me. The dealer makes some more money out of me when it goes wrong. I give people immense pleasure when it breaks down. This is a very spiritual act of owning a supercar. I don't know if any of you saw that video when I broke down five and a half hours. I didn't know. I thought that was you left your indicators on, but I got a load of that. Um, So I'm a massive fan of Alexander McQueen, the, 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 the fashion designer, and I buy a lot of McQueen's clothes, and I'm a massive fan of Vivian Westwood, and I buy a lot of her clothes. And I don't just buy clothes. I buy the story, I buy the personality. I buy everything that they stood for, everything that they expressed in the human form and Alexander McQueen was a great artist and a troubled artist. And I think that a lot of people are trying to separate like wealth is material is bad, is control, is power, spirit is, you know, beauty and that's that's the good and that's the bad. What what Patek Philippe have a right to create products, just as a utility company has a right to create a product. And okay, a utility company might give you utility, but Patek Philippe, I mean, their branding is you never own a Patek Philippe, you merely look after it for the next generation. That is a spiritual comment. I definitely like the way David said it at the start. He said, well, my meaning of spirit, because I think that spirituality is a very individual meaning. And so it depends on our connotation as to what it means. Uh, Is it fluffy? Is it universe? Is it religion? Is it caring about people? I think it's probably all of those. But spirit without matter is motionless.
1: I wrote it down if you need it.
0: Yeah. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it slow for the profound effect. But like...
1: Uh, i got to make sure I got it right.
0: Go on then, say it. Let's have it. I'm ju- I'm just, every time I say it, I check. I don't get it the wrong way around. Yeah. So spirit without matter is motionless. So a, a rock without spirit is a rock. But spirit into an item gives it life. And, of course, vice versa. So, because I did, I'm fascinated by money. Obviously, I wrote a very successful book in this country on money, called Money, and I did a tonne of research, as well as turning my life around from being in a lot of debt. And I was unhappy when I was skinned, and I'm a lot more happy when I'm wealthy. And I know it's not the only measure, but it's one of them. Um, but, like, if you have a lot of money and you give it away, that's a spiritual act. But it's in the form of physical matter i.e. wealth but it's a spiritual act and you can be more spiritual when you are wealthy because you can do great things with wealth so it's not that wealth isn't spiritual it's the use of wealth that's spiritual or not um yeah so something to think about but i think connect them more
1: yeah all right great. did lamborghini really make tractors? yeah no i made it up david <laughs> well, I didn't want to write it down if it wasn't
3: true.
0: <laughs> uh, okay, yes, we'll come to you.
3: Hi, um, my name's Jodie. Hi, Jodie. Um, could you share some of your beliefs that you had growing up around money and how they either attributed or challenged your career?
1: Well, I would say that. So keep in mind, growing up, my father was a contractor, so we had a we were a blue collar family so money was a very functional you know you used it to buy food and have a house painted every few years and you know that sort of thing it wasn't really but what i think that taught me is that how you spend your money sends a message every time you spend money so every single time i as either the ceo of my company or as an individual spends money, I'm sending a message to someone. I'm either sending a message to the people in my family or the people in my company or the people in my community of what my values are. So I think because my father's values were very clear, we were in a, we were in a one earning family. My mother was a um, house housekeeper, house, um, what's it called? Housemaker, is that what it's called, housemaker? Homemaker, uh, homemaker, homemaker. She was a homemaker. So. Um, there was one income in the family, but it clearly the way my father spent money, he, he was very thoughtful about it. And I try to be thoughtful that spending money sends a message about your own values. And I've gotten more thoughtful about it, I think, as I've got, as I've got older. Um, and you're amazed when you look back at your life at all the things that you spent money for and sometimes you you know i should be embarrassed to say this but sometimes you bought stuff because you thought it reflected on you a certain way that you wanted the world to look at you um and then you realize what a bunch of shit that is uh and what a relief it is when you feel like you don't have to do that anymore i know your argument is the one I heard from the men's room. I know that argument is <laughs> that it's easy for me. It's easy for me to say that, and that's true. It's fair. It's a fair comment, but it's a very it's a fair fair comment, but it doesn't. But doesn't make it not true because it's even though your comment's is fair, it doesn't make the outcome not true. How you choose to, um, you know, I was I, I, this. May mean nothing to you, but it was a hugely impactful moment for me. So I've always found um, uh, certain people. You know, everybody has certain people that they read about, that they see on TV or whatever. They just they connect with. Like James Stewart was one for me. I was was I was actually emotional when he died. I, never, I only met the man once in my life, but I felt like for some reason I felt like I knew him. And Ronald Reagan, I I met a couple times, but some somehow I felt like I had this I had this connection to him. So. Last last year, I, I drove, <laughs> I, I drove, I drove, I drove up to um, his ranch where he used to he used to go on the, on the weekends. So he was president of the United States during the <coughs> Cold War, and he was instrumental. Whether you liked him or didn't like him, he was instrumental in the uh, uh, Berlin Wall coming down. He was instrumental in the shape of the world after the Cold War, Uh, and and I went to his his house in this little house that he loved so much, his little, this is a relatively wealthy guy, and President of the United States, in his little house uh, outside Santa Barbara, the entire house is about 20% the size of this room, the two little twin beds were tied together with, um, what do you call those, tie wraps? Wire wraps, you know those little wire things. <laughs> no, the the wire, the little ones you put around wires. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the cops put them around around your your wrist. Ah, oh, we'd have all known
0: what you meant when you said <laughs> yeah, that. Exactly,
1: exactly. So so, um, in in the the was a little tiny bathroom with one of those. Um, we had one growing up too. You know those little tin tin showers that you you should have just shoved in the room, and when. When one of your brothers or sisters takes a shower, you can hear it, the whole house, it's like a, it comes out into the room, it's like a little tin thing you put. It was just an amazingly modest house. And I, I remember, you know, when you look back at interviews or you read books about him, he was just so happy there. And, it was, and he had the Queen of England there, he had Gorbachev there, he had all these heads of states and, and heads of government that would come in there, and they were probably looking at it and saying like, what is with this guy? But he was so confident in himself, that he didn't have to have have anything, you know. So now, when I, you know, I see people with these massive, massive uh, houses, I, 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 I the first thing that comes to my, my mind is how little self confidence they must have, that they think that they have to have all the stuff, so that you think that they're more important than they are. What if it doubles in value over ten years? <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's I guess that's that's good. If that's if that's if that's what you're a real estate guy. I I'm, I'm I'm not. And, and you you look my, my my real estate transactions are uh, I, I usually when I usually buy it's usually the height of the height of the market and then when I sell it's usually <laughs> the bottom of the market. So I wouldn't take real estate advice from me. But so I said, so I bought this house. Uh, 30 years ago, and and I remember at the time it was the most expensive house bought in that in that little town. I only, and that b- became a little bit of a thing. And it was an old house where uh, John Hart had signed the, he the guy that signed the Declaration of Independence lived there. So it was an old historic house. It was a, it was a lot of land around it, and, and a friend of mine bought a house that same year, and they're both on the market now together, and. My house, I won't get back what I have in it. Uh, and, he, and he bought a townhouse in Manhattan. And he's going to make $30 million on his. And I won't get back what I paid. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was bitching to a, a friend of mine. And while I was bitching to a friend of mine, this guy Ray, well I was bitching to him, and uh, he said, why'd you buy the house? I said, because I thought it was a beautiful place for my kids to grow up. I thought it was the right place for my kids to grow up. And he said, so you're complaining that you bought what you thought was a beautiful place for your kids and your kids grew up healthy and happy there? And he said, well, when you put it that way, I should shut up then, <laughs> right? So I made an deci- emotional decision that didn't turn out to be a good real estate decision, but it was it was great for my, it was great for my kids. I don't know what happened to the other guy. The other guy with 30 million, his kids might be axe murderers or something. <laughs> <laughs> my or kids, are, they, my kids might, are good.
0: They might be happy too. <laughs> they might be happy. That
1: would be, depressing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. be yeah. depressing. yeah.
1: To me, they're dysfunctional.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating listen to, listening to David because I, I definitely, if I'm self-aware enough, know that some of the things I spend my money on are to fill voids in my life. I know that. But I think we all do that. Someone who spends £1,500 a month on cosmetics. And I I I, I think it's a profound and true statement that you spend money on the things that are most important to you in your life. And how you spend money is a reflection of your values, what you hold to be most important. So if you're having money problems, you probably look at, wanna look at what needs you're getting unconsciously met by spending the money. Because one person will justify an expense that another person can't justify and it will and go round and round and round. I've had this in my life because I mentioned to you earlier, not feeling quite enough and maybe not having the confidence and feeling, to use the word imposter syndrome, it's way more complicated than that, but that's the word that people use. And so I used to buy designer clothes back then. I mean, I still do it now, but I think I've got a more balanced view of it, i.e. I can turn it down if it's not right, or I can wait for the sale or whatever else. But then I was just addicted to buying it because a a new piece of clothing might make me feel better about myself. But it got me into debt, a lot of debt, because I'm trying to fill a a hole that has, it's like a black hole. Because if you feel shit about yourself, the thing that you buy to feel better in the moment When you wake up tomorrow, you still feel the same. And it's a bottomless bucket. And I believe we've all got those areas of our life because we all have values which are usually driven by voids, i.e. what we feel we lack, we search to fill. So values are often linked to voids. The study of axiology, if you want to look into it, is fascinating. So the way I got around it is started to learn about money and investing and how could I still get my same needs met, but not waste the money? So I started buying clothes at Bister Village when it used to be cheap. And when you know now it's just like a it's a, it's like quite expensive now. So I used to always get clothes in the sale rather than new. Like I get invited to the, the VIP McQueen sale before they open, and it's forty percent off. And you know, most of their jackets are three, three and a half grand, and forty percent off is a lot of money off. So I wait. Don't let them hear me say that. They won't be inviting me to the Cannes Film Festival if I could just only buy the sale. Um, so I buy, I buy a Lamborghini Aventador, two or three years old, not new. I bought a Ferrari Testarossa. It's gone up about 35, 40 grand. bought it at 115 grand. It's probably worth 150 grand. Love looking at that thing. People will say to me, oh, cars, it's just material. Like, I, would, I could just look at that car. I just look at it and think, that's a. It's a thing of beauty. Like, that was on my wall when I was, what, 11 years old? And now it's in my garage. I mean, it never fucking works. It doesn't make any difference. (laughs) But um, but if I sell that, I've made 35 grand on it. So what I would say is, in those areas where you have voids or you're spending money to meet your own values, if you learn to not buy depreciating assets and... Okay, yeah, there's definitely an argument if you really enjoyed it. It doesn't matter too much. But if it, it's all right, again, i say this with respect, but it's all right for someone who can afford to lose 30% on their house or 20%. But if you can't, then you've got to be smart. Also in the UK, generally speaking, properties will just go up. It's different to the US. Um, but that was, there's some, just some things because if that's how I got myself out of debt and curved the spending habits by understanding what voids I was trying to fill with spending money and, like, watches. I love watches. And I know it's because it's jewellery and someone is like, oh, nice watch, Rob. And oh, yeah, yeah, good you
1: know, Yeah, yeah,
0: thanks. Um, but if you make a lot of money on them, which you can then put into something good, I, I think it's a good way to balance those voids. Just something to think about. Cool, we'll take one more question right at the back, sir, in the scarf.
4: Uh, my name's Bruce. Hi, Bruce. So I live in, uh, in Australia and in the UK and... Um... I see the similar sort of problems that David's outlined, housing, education, health, same across the globe. My question's about greed and leadership. So greed with companies and with politicians and leaders throughout the world, but if you create a system where you've got... ..you bring the situation where you come from the bottom up, someone has to be the leader... And who in history has come from the grassroots to be a leader without being greedy? Gandhi.
1: Well, um, let, let's. And how do
4: you solve that problem
1: well, going forward? Well, let let let's let let's talk about uh, besides Gandhi that someone just said. Let's talk about besides Mother Teresa. How about? Um, uh, Obama was a, a community leader. And when he was running for president, a lot of people were, were shitting on him because they said, look, he's he's had nothing in his background. He's a community leader. Okay, he got elected as a senator, then he's running for president. What experience does he have? My attitude was good on him. Good on him. He's a community leader. Now, you good on him because he hasn't been spoiled uh, by the system. But what about um the great artists and writers of our time that came from nothing to be best-selling authors or to be uh best-selling artists that, that move people on an emotional <laughs> level or an intellectual level what about musicians that came from the the bottom that have moved people with their 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 lyrics or their music people can come why can't why can they come from the bottom in all those things but not come from the bottom in politics? What, what, what? Why would we say that they can't come from the bottom? And what, what makes leadership qualities something that has to come from the top? Why would leadership qualities, aren't they something that you're born with or that you learn from your parents or you learn from your community, leadership qualities?
4: That may be the case, but you're, you, uh, as an American, live in a system where the maximum time is eight years and the next bloke comes in and rips it apart. Well... It's gone. And the phil- next fellow might come in and be Obama Mark II and try and put it up, but that's only eight years again. Whereas in this country, someone can stay in for whatever the period of time is.
1: Well, if it was, if I was in charge... All see our congressmen, senators, that pass all the laws, not the president, that pass all the laws, can stay indefinitely. If I was in charge, there'd be six years maximum for everyone. You would get elected once, and you couldn't run for re-election. Six years. Now, what that would do is that would cut the lying down by like ninety percent, because the lying in the in the false promises are perpetuated by your need to get votes to keep your job, right? So it's self-preservation. If you're not running for re-election, there's no, you might as well tell the truth because you're not going to run for re-election anyway, so it's just as easy to tell the truth as it is to make up some bullshit, right? So, um, but I, 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 don't, I don't think that we can't find young, good leaders from, from the bottom up. Look, if you go to a favela in Brazil and some very, very poor favela in Brazil. Guaranteed, there's a leader there. You try walking into that favela and setting up a little shop, and you'll find out real quick who the leader is. <laughs> you walk into Anacostia, the most dangerous part of, of, of Washington, D.C., where I was a probation officer's aide, with. that's where I started my career, and you walk down the street, it won't take you two minutes to find out who the leader is. You walk in South Central LA and you'll know who the leader is. So, is it look? There's, you know, uh, I don't know how much. What was that drug deal in Mexico called? The, the big really. Escobar. Like I don't know how much education he had, but he must have had some leadership skills, right? I mean. He figured out how to be the largest drug dealer. I'm not suggesting that we become drug dealers, but he became the largest drug dealer <laughs> the in the world. That's the next book. And then he figured out how to escape from jail like three times, right? So, so he, he must have had some leadership. And he had, I don't think he had any education. You know, most of these, these dictators in these uh, third world countries, most of them have good leadership capabilities to get where they they got. So I think that we can find them from the bottom up. We have to be able to, because we have to recognize that the top is screwed it up. We have screwed up the world, and it's getting worse, not better. It is not getting better. And the problems are getting bigger, and the space between the solutions are coming, more and more space between the solutions. The solutions have become more expensive, and it's just not working. So we need to rethink it. We need to rethink education, like that gentleman over there is. We have to rethink healthcare. care. And the answer to rethinking health care is, it, it annoys me so much when I hear a politician say, we're just gonna give, you know, we're, in your country, they're just saying, all right, we're gonna get, what is it, 125,000 more nurses or whatever they're, whatever they're saying. And then in America, they're saying, we're gonna just give free health care to everyone. Neither of those answers are dealing with the basic fundamental problem. If you have more nurses on a system that's broken, okay, there's more people and and maybe you can shuffle people through a broken system quicker. In the United States, if you give free healthcare, we pay more on healthcare than any developed country in the world and it's not free. We pay two and a half times more than you do in this country Per capita, but we still charge a person for it. How is that possible? That you can pay twice as much as a country that gives it for free, and then not have it free. I mean, that like, mm-hmm. doesn't make any, It's like that's almost hard to do, right? So those problems are just getting bigger and bigger, and we have to find a solution from the bottom up. Or I'm going to die trying because it. It, it, ha- there, it. There are people around the world that have solved some of these problems. And we've got to find them, we've got to highlight them, we've got to praise them, we've got to give them confidence, we've got to give them support, we've got to encourage them, we've got to figure out how to connect them. And, and look, like I said to someone earlier, if I fail, I'll enjoy the ride. That's my attitude.
0: And that's a lovely place to finish. I just want to say, uh, David, it's a real pleasure spending oh, time pleasure with you. Mine. pleasure and mine. And I know how much you've had on this year, so to be able to spend this time with you, me personally, twice... My and we're not finished yet because we're going to Burger and Lobster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that was the deal. That was the deal. Um, i have big this up, place up massively. So please, could we give David a huge round of applause? Thank you, David.